Welcome back to March Mad Men, the podcast that is insanely devoted to horror movies of the past and present. Tonight, we are taking another look at the film that truly sparked the slasher craze of the 1980s. In some way, it's unequivocally the granddaddy of them all. It is, of course, the 1978 John Carpenter classic, Halloween. This is the last of the four heavyweight contenders vying for the title of greatest slasher movie ever made. We're in the finals of our 64 film tournament inspired by that iconic fixture of sport ball, March Madness. And I'm aware that I just mixed boxing and basketball metaphors, but who cares at this point? If you didn't know already, I am John Evans, and uh, here to discuss Halloween with me tonight are screenwriter Vikram Wheat and producer Rich Eckersley. But because the three of us have delved ever so deeply into the Halloween film franchise already in previous seasons of this podcast, we've ordered an infusion of new blood tonight. It is my pleasure to introduce a man whom I've discussed horror movies with over countless countless beers, certainly far too many beers on some occasions in the past. Uh, He's been a loyal listener this season, and uh, he contributed suggestions for consideration in our tournament as a true fan of the slasher flick. He is Luke Merrick, and his horror fiction has uh, appeared under the name L.G. Merrick in Dark Moon Digest, the zine Murdered Futures, and at his website, cannibalcyclops.com. Luke, a warm welcome to the show. And as customary, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm drinking a Manhattan made with Sagamore double oaked rye. Very fancy for me tonight. I love a rye Manhattan, Luke. That's, uh, that's one of my go-tos. I, I. I very much approve. As do I. <laughs> that's going to be a piece of cake to edit <laughs> and uh yeah luke and i go back um about seven or eight nine years somewhere in there uh we used to work together at an ad agency and uh you know, uh, it's 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 fun to to bring him into the fold here, and I'm looking forward to talking about this movie. Uh, of course, Vic, you've always got stuff going on, and uh, and what are you drinking tonight? Catch us up, man. You got it. I am drinking. This is a podcast first, I believe. This is a Bravery Brewing The Gunny American Strong Ale, uh, kind of a local brewery, which I'm a big fan of. And uh, I just want to say welcome, Luke, and thank you for classing up the joint uh, with your uh, <laughs> with your with your cocktail, man. We need that around here. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, where uh, I can go with a cocktail to class up a joint, I will class up that joint with that cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what's the ABV on that beer of yours, Vic? I, I'm sure it's uh, double digits, but just tell me for out of curiosity. No, as a matter of fact, it's a uh, it's a modest seven point five, John. Oh, that's a session beer for you. Yes, yes, it is. Way to hold back. <laughs> you you must want to be coherent tonight. <laughs> I just assumed this wouldn't take very long, but whatever. <laughs> it never does. All right, Rich. Rich, tell us what's going on, and and you're always exciting, kind of terrifyingly stressful life. And what are you drinking, of course? 
Uh, first of all, I want to I want to point out that um, that everyone's known since season two of this series that when you refer to an old ad agency buddy, it's always referring to a professional BSDM club. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. We want to keep up appearances. We can keep up appearances. Um, wow! Peek behind the beaded curtain there, uh, Rich. Yeah, well, you know, we try to we try to just like lay it all out of the line on this on this <laughs> podcast. But but regardless, I am uh, I am also thrilled to have you on board. Thank you so much for coming in over and guesting with us. Yeah, I'm I'm here having another school night, so I'm actually have I have water. I actually just ran out of water. I have nothing. I have nothing. <laughs> I'm done over here. Rich is hitting the oxygen pretty hard tonight. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> but but who but who knows? Tips that frequently I'll I'll break by like the second half of the the podcast. So we'll see how it goes. I have could a feeling a, you will. Could Let be a glass know. of wine there. I don't. I don't know. Now I'm feeling inspired. <laughs> I could whip up in Manhattan if we have a decent break. <laughs> Luke, you're already having a positive impact on this podcast. Well done. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. I'm curious what the yes. I'm. <laughs> I'm curious. He mentioned it was a professional BDSM club that we met, and I'm in, and I'm curious what the line is between the amateur and the professional clubs. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, Mostly pay grade. <laughs> oh, you get paid? Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, well, we're, we've been doing it wrong, Luke, all these years. <laughs> uh, well, I, I am cracking open, and I thought this was appropriate. And this is also a new one for the podcast, I believe. Uh, it's the Stone Fear Movie Lions. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, it's an IPA. Yep. I figured uh, Rich would be familiar with it as a aficionado of stone. Uh, by the way, Rich, I was in San Diego and definitely enjoyed visiting the Pizza Port Brewery, and I thought of you a couple weeks ago. I went to San Diego, and I did not get to stop by. I was So I'm glad that you were able to do it for me. Thank you. Yes, in your honor. And I haven't done this in a long time. Uh, I don't know if it's going to actually pick up on Mike, but I'm going to try to open this bottle to really get us started and let's see if it registers. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Did you? Yeah, nice. Yeah, good. Outstanding. Outstanding. So uh, that is our christening moment. All right. Mm. Mm. And it's a tasty brew. All right, let's get serious. So uh, because we are skipping the loving autopsy here, um you know, largely due to the fact that we did a loving autopsy of this film in the past uh, with, as Rich mentioned, Mike, Vic, and I did that. Uh, I did want to kind of somewhat create a hybrid here. And a lot of my personal notes are somewhat chronological, but also I, I think, you know, they have some kind of big picture-ish aspects so uh, that's kind of personally where I'm coming at it from, but uh, you guys may have, you know, truly kind of hewed to the concept of overview. So while, of course, we can get into things as we, you know, somewhat walk through the film, let's kind of start off with uh, a little bit of big picture stuff and give you guys the opportunity to maybe like, talk about the larger 
ramifications of the film on this time, you know, for this show, I, I have not pulled like what the critics were saying or, or stuff like that. This is, would be a good time for that. So yeah, before we kind of, in a way, get granular and go like a little bit linear and scene by scene here, uh, let's take a look at the, at the bird's eye view. And there's no man that likes to look at things from a bird's eye view more than, uh, than Vic. So, uh, Vic, uh, Take it away, man. Fly, fly, bird, fly. <laughs> uh, I'd like to say thank you, John, but I'm going to say fuck you, John. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I'd just like to start off with a quote by the great Pauline Kale, who said of Halloween. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, but I do have – because we have we have talked so much justifiably about Halloween, uh, I really did want to come up with – a lens uh, uh, to to view it through in this that really called attention to to what draws me so strongly to this film and has for so many years and through so many viewings. And I think for me, I, I found this wonderful essay by a guy named Brian Eggert uh, who said of Halloween here, the movie reaches beyond its confident technical execution and grabs at the audience, putting viewers through a troubled nightmare of suspense and uncertain dread. It reaches into our deepest, most primitive anxieties of the unknown and then exploits them. Halloween is a cipher that moviegoers, critics, and film scholars have filled in with countless readings. And I think that, to me, is the 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 appeal of it in so many ways, that we have enough definition around Michael Myers, a, a shape, if you will, um, that it, it fills the, the needs of the film in a narrative way, but it leaves just enough negative space that viewers and, and critics and scholars and, and, and horror nuts like us can really find fascinating interpretations of it and, and things to, to put on to him. And so going through it this time, I've just got – I've found a bunch of different takes on – what the the meaning of Michael Myers is or why he is the way he is. And is there a supernatural element? All the kinds of things that we've discussed. But I think the wide variety of those and the amount of supporting evidence for all of them is what makes this such a great film to go through over and over again. I want to throw this to Luke, but I will say that's a fantastic point. And the thought that I immediately had listening to you is that Michael Myers is a blank vessel, an empty vessel. Like something that whatever you think the boogeyman is, like he leaves space for your interpretation to be correct. And that that makes him a universal villain that, yeah, rather than dictating this entire backstory and everything that drives him and all of that and limiting to like, oh, no, this is just what he is. You can project whatever you want into it. And that's infinitely more powerful. I totally agree. Luke, what are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting you say that, actually, because um, my experience of this movie is is um, in some ways very recent. I did not see this movie until 2018. And that is an embarrassing fact to admit, but it is true. Uh, however, that said, I was well aware of it when I was nine years old because this movie was an absolute grammar school bus stop legend at that point. So the older yeah. kids who were, you know, 11 years old were recounting it scene by scene to me. And it just sounded absolutely terrifying, you know, and they they would tell it in, um, 
You know, then she jabs the knitting needle into his neck and he keels over, but he's not dead. And she doesn't know that, you know, it was, it was very engrossing the way they would tell it. Um, and they would tell it in a tone as if they were lucky to still be alive after seeing it. Like it was just an ordeal to watch this movie. Um, I did not lobby my mother to see this one because I was, it made me nervous, the, the bus stop tellings of it. And then somehow when I started getting into horror when I was 17, you know, I just never rented this one somehow. Somehow I, I guess everyone else had already seen it, so it never came up. Um, and so I went all the way into past 40 before I saw it. And that is embarrassing to admit, but as a result, you know, I had this sort of oral telling version of it in my head. Uh, so when I saw it, it was living up not to official hype or to a memory of it so much as it was to the bus stop stories of it. And uh, what I had put onto the movie myself going into it was that it was going to be one of the most relentless nightmares of all time. And I found that it really wasn't that. A couple of things about it really surprised me. One is that it takes place mostly in daylight. And, uh, and two is that the tone is so borderline comical in so many ways. Um, I didn't see that coming at all. Like the point where Michael is um, standing there with a ghost costume with sunglasses on and PJ Souls is filing her nails postcoitally. Like that's that's just comedy. And I didn't expect that from this movie at all. So it just absolutely threw my expectations into total upheaval when I saw it. Did you guys have a similar experience? I mean, you guys, you, you probably all saw it when you were much younger than I did. I actually saw largely part two um, at a fairly young age repeatedly and i remember the hot tub scene in part two very distinctly and then i went on to watch like the 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 middle of the pack films like if anything i i think that my first like real reference point beyond uh two was actually like the thorn trilogy films and kind of getting into the really bad versions of halloween so it really it was a a vic got me to revisit it i'm pretty sure that i watched halloween at some point probably on television as a as a kid, but it wasn't something that made an impression on me. And um, and shortly after I met Vic, and it's interesting, they're they're very different films. But I I don't know. Would would you agree? Like, do you feel like that's applicable to, to both of them? A hundred percent. And that was something that I thought about when I was thinking about Halloween through this through this lens. That I don't think you could really use you you could say that about Friday the Thirteenth Part Two or about Black Christmas. But I think yeah. you can apply it to these two films. And I, but I think the the difference is in many ways that that what you what gets drawn out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like you were saying, sort of cultural, right? Like it's where it's what is it saying about America, society, class, uh, generational conflicts? Like there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in that. What is also a, a fairly simple story from a narrative sense, uh, and I feel like a lot of what's going on in Halloween is very much more internal and kind of related to the story. I'll get into more of the what I mean by that when we get to it. But I don't think that Halloween speaks as much to uh, America in the 1970s, let's say. Yeah, I, I have read interpretations of it, though, that are like trying to like have it talk about the, like, the, the, the Halloween in some ways is representing this dichotomy of like the pre and post like Vietnam War era culture. And like, I mean, I don't know, we don't, we don't have to get into all that now. But like it's but yeah, there's definitely like some similarities in there. But I think that's just the time period, right? It's like it's kind of inescapable in like the, the time period that both of those movies were made. You could draw a very Go clear ahead. line between the man in the black pajamas 
and Michael Myers' uh, dark blue jumpsuit. I'm just saying, like that's that seems sort of obvious. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a joke. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I don't. I don't see the Viet Cong uh, parallel. But uh, <laughs> it was the idea no, I mean, the, the I, black pajamas people, versus the jumpsuit. Come on, John. Literal. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Yes. 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 I see your black pajamas. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. We can we can cut all this. Yep. It's fine. <laughs> no, no, it's staying. Uh, <laughs> it's actually probably going to be your call. Well, who knows? Anyway, um, no, I mean, I think most people talk about this movie thematically as more kind of being the representation of danger coming to the suburbs, where for a lot of us, this is the first time our notions of invulnerability or absolute safety and kind of the hermetically sealed world of our suburban life being punctured forever and irrevocably by the idea of of some psycho lurking you know between the hedges and in the alleys and in front of our laundry and so on which you know as vic has brought up and i think was a fantastic point and maybe we didn't give him enough credit at the time this movie takes place during the golden age of serial killers certainly in california i mean there were a lot of very very fucked up killers operating in in this period and they had an enormous body count so i think america was kind of grappling by 1978 with the idea that uh the fragility of people's perceived safety being very much threatened so i I think that's the main thing that i hear about as far as what this, this movie how it kind of tapped into that the age-old notion, age-old since 1975, but just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water or whatever, the idea that, you know, you thought you were okay getting in the, you know, going in the ocean. Well, you're not. Well, you think you're okay walking around your neighborhood in Pasadena or Illinois, you know, but you're not, right? So that's, that's kind of the, 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 the universal fear that it's tapping into. So, yeah, good points all. I would just say, uh, Luke, I touched on this, I'm sure, previously, but kind of to answer your question, my first Halloween movie was four. And I saw it for my birthday, like a little birthday party outing with, you know, my mom took me and some other middle school kids to the movie theater. And that was the first Halloween that I I saw, uh, which is a Michael Myers Halloween. It's the first post uh, Halloween three, Michael Myers movie. And then I doubled back and saw, uh, this one. And I can definitely tell you, I was a lot more impressed with the original than I was with four, uh, even at that young age. Sorry, I've not seen four. So I, I guess I have some homework to do here still, but I am, I do feel uh, a lot less, a lot less embarrassed to hear these stories of not watching it when you were nine and 10. I, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You, you should be embarrassed, Luke. I, I watched yeah. it when I was 10, and, I, and I'm apparently the only person in this group who watched this when you should and just <laughs> absolutely scared the shit out of myself for, for weeks afterwards. Well, that's what I was thinking when I was watching it. I'm like, how badly would this movie have gotten to me if I saw it when I was 10 or 11 years old? Like, there are certain scenes in there that, as I'm watching it, my adult brain is going, so is he just carrying the tombstone around with him everywhere he goes that night? And then he puts it here right. or, but as a kid, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have occurred to me at all. I would have just been freaked out by the tableau. And, 
and it would have worked on a completely different gut level. So um, I, I feel like I missed out by not seeing it a long time ago. Um, I do regret that. Yeah, I don't I don't have a super clear memory of my first watch the way I know I would if I'd seen it maybe even just a couple of years sooner than I did. I'm sure it would have traumatized me more. But I probably saw it when I was like 14, and that makes all the difference from like 11 or even 12 maybe. Okay, well, um, before we tie a bow on this like big pre-going-into-the-film part, I want to, you know, open it up again. Like if, if you really want to talk about like the mainstream reception of this film or how it did in the awards spent, you know, season that year, again, we've covered this movie before. We even talked about this stuff this season, albeit many episodes ago and months and possibly over a year. This would be the time to kind of get that out of the way. Well, John, I think a quote by the great William Faulkner is really applicable <laughs> to this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I can tell you that, that, that Pauline Kael in The New Yorker did say that maybe when a horror film is stripped of everything but dumb scariness, when it isn't a shame to revive the stalest device of the genre, the escaped lunatic, it satisfies part of the audience in a more basic, childish way than sophisticated horror pictures do. So Pauline Kael did not find this to be a sophisticated horror picture. And I just want to go on record making sure that we know that. You know, I'm sure like that that prompts me to, to make this aside. Uh, I'm sure you guys are probably aware. Hopefully you've seen. If not, do so. Uh, Shudder has this documentary series about 80s horror films called In Search of Darkness. And one of the things that I came away from, and I knew this basically, but they show, like they keep going back to Siskel and Ebert talking about slasher movies. And especially Gene Siskel. I just feel like, he. I think he literally says, he's like, you know the worst thing about this job is that I have to watch these reprehensible films. <laughs> you know, he's just so filled with righteous outrage at horror movies in general, slasher movies specifically. And I'm just like, dude, just chill out, man. I mean, really? Like, this is the the decline of Western civilization in Gene Siskel's mind. And it's all like uh, snuff films or something. And, and it really did make me laugh to, to think that he was so miserable to have to talk about all of this garbage on his show uh, for money uh, as a career. Uh, yeah, that poor guy. That poor guy. Okay. Um, let's, let's get into this thing. So um, I will preface by saying I watched the movie again last week and I did take five milligrams of THC and uh, this is kind of my, my, my takeaway from this. I, I changed my, my perception changed the slightest bit. I think, I think the movie has some of the best individual moments of the slasher subgenre, mostly of that subtle creeping dread variety as we will get into. I have, I found I have problems with the on-screen kills and it's a blurry line between artfully suspenseful set pieces and stretching too many scenes out as if to kind of help a thin plot reach feature length. 
I, I was kind of feeling that a little bit in 2023. Also, there's something subjective here with the characters. And, uh, you know, like I've, I've said at other times, I've thought that these are some of the best characters in, in slasher movies. I'm not totally backing away from that, but there's an argument to be made that they're all annoying in one way or another, uh, while they do have their charms. And I think epitomizing that dichotomy is Laurie Strode herself. She's the movie's most likable character for sure. But I actually found her frustrating to watch for at least half the movie, and, and I'll get into that. But, you know, my, my experience is mostly positive. I, I certainly still come away saying this is a landmark in horror cinema. It's John fucking Carpenter. It's got all kinds of Carpenter moments. And I think this particular Michael Myers is pretty terrifying. And I was even coming away with it reminded that this mask, this Michael Myers mask, is as good as it, it's ever going to get. And that, that goes a long way. But I can't entirely say that this movie is free from the, the flaws and amateurish aspects that we've been noticing afflict so many of its slasher movie brethren in the course of this deep dive that we've done this season. I don't think this movie is John Carpenter at the peak of his powers. This movie is not the thing. And it, and it does feel dated in, in some important ways. So kind of my takeaway from the viewing is I I don't want to go to my grave without revisiting this movie again, but I mostly feel like I've gotten everything I need to get out of it. I I have affection for it, but you guys, I welcome you to challenge this assertion. I think Vic is ready to do so, but I just don't think these waters are all that deep. And while it's a fun watch, as Luke pointed out, I mean, I definitely think there's more humor and enjoyment to this movie than even meets the eye or you would remember. But it's not Return of the Living Dead either, or in my opinion, the average Friday the 13th movie as far as being a fun watch. I think you watch this movie to be freaked out, and it does that, but it doesn't do it well enough to keep me up at night. So that's that's my prefatory comment. Vic, I guess, I'll, yeah, I'll give you first thought like do you want to respond to that in any way no mm. good 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 man rich <laughs> um i mean john look i like this like the shining for me i feel like familiarity has worn off some of the the truly frightening edges of it but i i still have that I don't know, just that that deep seated trauma of watching it again, not the first time, but like the first 10 times it scared the shit out of me. I still have nightmares about Michael Myers as an adult. And that's absolutely true. Well, I actually agree with you. I I think that um, the tension for me just didn't quite ratchet up in a way because it was working against the comedy at so many points. And so for me, this is a movie that that has trouble developing its tone. There's just so many sections where the reality is kind of heightened in a way that doesn't work. Like the birds are chirping too loudly. So you become aware of it as like a fake bird chirp that's just been piped into the movie. So you're not really in a reality that you feel there's a real threat. It feels very much like it's constantly saying, don't forget I'm a movie in some ways. Like even the scene where Michael Myers is carrying um, his first murder victim while the forbidden planet soundtrack plays 
you know? And then there's the famous poster of Forbidden Planet where the robot's carrying the girl in the exact same way that Michael Myers is carrying the girl. So it, it seems like there's just so many moments like that that throw me out of being um, nervous about what's going to happen because I'm just aware of it as a movie. And it seems like it's constantly signaling to me that it's a movie. But at the same time, when the violence happens, it just it just lurches at you. And, um, the one thing that's interesting about Michael Myers is that um, – you know, he moves very slowly. He's approaching you. He's confident that he's going to kill you. So he's, there's no need to rush. But when he gets up close, he, he's very fast. And when he lunges out of the closet and kills Bob, and then when he's in the car, um, those are both pretty startling moments. I respected that about the movie a lot, but it felt like they were very isolated. They didn't get built to properly, from my experience. But that also could be my experience coming to it as, you know, a, a full-grown, very mature adult, not as a 11-year-old, which I should have been. Rich, how does all this strike you? I mean, look, the movie has a, for lack of a better term, a certain shabbiness to it that I associate not just with the genre, but with the time period and the, the budget and the, the age and experience of the filmmakers involved. I think you can see in like countless other movies. And yet what this movie does is capture a, a spirit and a, in a tone and a vibe that would not be recreated by a hundred other franchises, let alone this franchise ever capturing it again. And like with, with this level of power. And I, and I agree with you, like you can, you can try to pick it apart in terms of, is it sort of like a perfect film, but like, that's when you're picking apart. I think that taking it, taking it as a whole I think that this movie has a sort of like unmatchable power to it. This movie still like evokes, like I will still put this movie on just about every Halloween because it still captures a very specific feeling and time and place. It's the type of dread I want to feel at, at this time of year. And they, they nail that like emotional tone perfectly. And I actually think like, I don't know, I'm interested to talk through some of the kills because I agree Well, while they can be prolonged, they're also you know, sort of, uh, you know, ultimately like executed, no pun intended, with <laughs> a kind of naked bluntness that I think would eventually be covered up by flashier edits and louder music in subsequent films. Um, you know, and it shows like a level of like restraint or at least a certain level of uh, kind of musician musicianship as a filmmaker, you know, of, of timing and like when to let things happen that you weren't getting elsewhere. So like, what is it? John Carpenter at the heart, at the height of his powers? Like, no, but like, that doesn't necessarily mean that it might not be, you know, his best work. Mm, well, it's definitely not his best work for me, <laughs> but cause you know, I think the thing is, it'd be a contender to win our whole like tournament. If we go for 50 years, as far as what's the greatest horror film of all time. And I don't think Halloween has my vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love the thing. I've also fallen asleep in the middle of the thing, you know, and like, <laughs> wow. I can't say that about Halloween. Like it's, it's a more compact <laughs> package, you know, and it's funny that like, well, the other thing I want to point out, the other thing I want to point out about your, your read on it is that it's basically also Rob Zombie's read on it, which was like, there's two, like there's the, the movie is like too stretched out for the amount of material that we have. So I'm going to condense it down to like an hour and just like power through it and like punch it up. And, you know, that was like met with like mixed results. And, you know, that's not just like the 
the concept that's like zombies execution. But still, like, I think you lose something if you were just to take this and sort of like be like, well, let's just like dial this thing in, you know, like and make it punchier. There is you guys are going to think I'm crazy, but there is a story that Michael Camino tested a version of the deer hunter that cut the like 30 minute marriage scene in the in the first act. And it tested really poorly. But when he played the the whole film with it in, they said that was like the weakest part. And if they could change anything, they would cut down the marriage scene. And so I wonder if this is sort of an instance of that, that there's something gained by those long, languorous takes, even though you feel the the length of them, even though it feels sort of shabby and like you're stretching out the material, that it somehow contributes to the scares in some other sort of ineffable way down the road. Yeah, I think it does at times. And I think as we kind of get more specific, taking this movie scene by scene to a degree, that we can get into that. But I also feel like my my real point is that I get a little bored having seen it enough times to know how long this is going to go on before anything happens. And I don't necessarily consider that a strength, but certainly there are aspects of the film where you're like, Oh man, like Annie's long goodbye, as I kind of called it really is sort of excruciating because he is just stalking her forever before he finally kills her. And I think I like that overall as, as a thing. I just want to double back really quick to something Luke said about like the kind of, if you're getting too scared, well, don't worry. We'll give you a little nudge. It's just a movie is kind of my, how I am interpreting what he was talking about. And for me, I think that even extends to the kills and we'll get into it. But I think there are little choices probably made by the actors, possibly John Carpenter, that take a little bit of the sting or the disturbingness out of the kills. And I think that kind of is all part of the idea that that they, they're making this movie to make money and to be crowd-pleasing, and it's never going to cross a certain threshold of being truly scary or disturbing because they don't want to actually traumatize and alienate the the viewer, which I totally understand. But all these years later, it makes the movie seem kind of tame and watered down from, from my perspective. So, okay, moving on to the opening sequence. Let's start getting a little bit granular. Now we've talked about the opening sequence. Many people have talked about the opening sequence, but it's a great opening sequence. And there's, Lots to kind of unpack and theorize about, speculate on in this opening sequence, which, of course, is set in 1963. My my first kind of question to you guys is, do we ever get even a smidgen of reason why Michael kills his sister? Is what she's doing with her boyfriend triggering her Michael like the whole, well, she's having sex. You know, she doesn't know that her brother is watching it, but is it, is it the sex thing that triggers him? Is it feeling neglected by his sister who should be looking after him on Halloween night? Or is it incidental? And the fact that Michael is snapping on this night 
does it have more to do with it being Halloween? And I will just say that lately I've been wondering, is there some impish Halloween spirit or demon that takes possession of him here out of nowhere and just never lets him go? That's something that I might be talking about a little bit in the course of the night because of the fact that this movie is called Halloween and the culture of Halloween does seem to be important to Michael Myers. And of course there's the theory that maybe it's just some timer inside of Michael. We're back to sort of more of a maybe evil as what we perceive a certain kind of psychosis to be, you know, not being insensitive to actual psychosis in the real world, but sort of the movie perception of psychosis, that there was some timer in him that just went off. And Loomis kind of references the secret alarm within Michael later. Uh, let's, let's start with Luke here. Do, do you have any thoughts on any of that? I was similarly confused by the, by the opening sequence. Like, obviously, it seems he walks in and he looks at the bed where they had sex. So it seems like we do get a smidgen of an indication, right, that it's sex is a trigger. But is it how tied is it to Halloween and to the wearing of masks? Like, what exactly is going on there? I don't really know. But it did occur to me that when his parents find him outside, they don't seem too terribly startled. They sort of take the mask off him and they see they take the knife away. But then everyone just kind of stands there, almost like a diorama, right? So... Does that indicate that they've always known there's something deeply wrong with their kid or and they just are hoping now that it's not as bad as they suspect when they see the bloody knife or do they are they standing there in shock? We don't really know the answer to that question. So that kind of throws me a little bit. I would go on the side of they've always known because uh, Loomis says, you know, he's pure evil and gives multiple speeches about how he's pure evil. So I think something in Michael's just always been bad. But the movie doesn't really let us know, and I think that was – well, I'm, I'm sure that's part of what I meant before when I was saying that the movie uh, – the way that it set, shows the scenes um, – I get the point that, that, that it's the 70s, that it's the 70s, it's low budget, it's, there's a certain shabbiness to it. That I, I love that stuff. Um, but in this one, I feel like sometimes it, the shabbiness or the 70s-ness of it leaves it unanswered what exactly is going on. Like the, the character – you should get a better clue – through the parents' reaction to him, what the past is that's led up to this moment, and you don't, and that bums me out a little bit. I wish that was a little bit sharper, so you had more information. Okay, okay. I, I will say, just to play devil's advocate, I could read that, which I guess maybe is a compliment to the film. Again, that that blank canvas thing, like you bring that to it, I bring this to it. I could see the parents' reaction as like they're not that worried. Like if, if they had run into the house or dropped to their knees and just started like, Oh no, what did you do? Or something that would suggest either way, like, okay, like you come out here with the knife, you killed your fucking sister. Right. But they're just kind of like, baby, why did you come out to the sidewalk with a knife in your hand? Which to me, like you could read it that way, suggesting like, they have no clue until later, like we cut before they have any idea that they should actually be freaked out by this. I, I think well, that really well, the, is totally borne out. I mean, the sister also, it's not like she saw this coming. You know, like she's she seems just she seems just as surprised as anyone. You know, like <laughs> I I think yeah. that the 
you know, maybe the, the real question for this isn't that, I mean, you're talking about kind of two different things, right? Which is that one is like, what had he previously exhibited violent tendencies? Was there, was there a concern that he was going to harm someone else? But was he just like a blank, pale, emotionless child up to this point, which made it all the more shocking when he did, did like committed an act of violence? Like, it's possible that it's just that he's always been a very strange kid. It just never manifested itself in this way, which seems like the more likely outcome, right? It's like the parents, like, take the mask off and they look at him and Michael, you know, and then they're just like, they're not getting anything, which is just what what they're used to. It's like. But there's hmm. just enough ambiguity here that if someone were to, were to, to suggest, yeah, but we don't know if until this Halloween night, he was totally normal and, and something just changed tonight. I don't think there's any real strong evidence to suggest that that's totally out of, out of the realm of possibility either. I want to offer if I can. So I, because I was looking for different interpretations of the movie, I actually have a couple different takes on this. If, if you guys want to hear this, um, if, if you don't, I, I, guess I can just shut up and then that's fine too. Well, no, no, just fast forward the podcast. Once you hear Vic talking, yeah. wait for my voice to come back. No, yeah. um, so this is from uh, uh, a bloody disgusting essay by Brad Miska called the boogeyman fear and responsibility, a close analysis of Halloween. Now I want to be clear. I really don't agree with this. His take on this is very much, like what we were talking about with Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2, where he says, um, I think these murders are primarily motivated by the fact that these teenagers are throwing off their responsibilities in a way that reminds Michael of his first victim, his older sister, Judith. This is no act of impulse. This is no crime of passion. This is a calculated, deliberate decision, one that has less to do with psychopathy than it does with cold judgment for what he believes to be a transgression of trust and responsibility and for Judith's refusal to acknowledge the very real threat he would soon pose. So that feels like, a again, a very Friday the 13th interpretation of it, which I don't particularly buy. That doesn't That doesn't read well to me. John Carpenter uh, has dismissed theories about a moral killer who represents a cultural phenomenon. Uh, this is from a, the – I'm going back to the other essay I referenced earlier uh, – suggesting instead that Michael is motivated by, quote, an Oedipal or incestual thing. I think he needs to reread Oedipus to make sense of that. But uh, – so that's actually another take on it that I find sort of interesting. Uh, and, and there's actually there's, – there's more – there's more depth to that that I think we can can get into as we get further into the film. But the other one, and John, I think this re- references what uh, what you were talking about, is he says that at other times it's almost as though an evil force inside of Michael controls him, another entity or part of Michael that remains separate, remote, or even otherworldly. Consider an odd moment from the opening sequence when, in a point-of-view shot, Michael creeps up the stairs to kill his sister. As he brings the knife down on her repeatedly, the subjective camera looks away at the knife in his hand as if in disbelief. Carpenter and everybody else has always said that this wasn't uh, at all – this was a, a budget necessity so that he didn't have to do the, the the sort of graphic kill. And so he relied on an awkward moment where Michael looks away at his own hand motions while the actress poured fake blood on herself. 
But what if Michael has something inside of him that controls his body and allows him to emerge at, at rare times? Is this shot evidence of a possessed Michael beholding his body with powerlessness and disbelief? Elsewhere, watch how Michael sometimes reflects on victims' bodies or pauses to deliberate. In those brief moments, perhaps this is Michael regaining some control over the source of evil, the shape that propels him. So I, I, I like that. I agree that they leave this very open-ended and they don't give us enough enough evidence to draw definite conclusions. But I do feel like there's enough going on in the scene that you can read it in, in ways that are maybe interesting or effective. Cause I don't like the, the, the first interpretation that I mentioned, but I do, there's some interesting stuff in the second one. And like you, John, I kind of like the third one. I think that's sort of interesting as well. Yeah. I, I think that we, we can't ever get away from, you know, the reality of reading this as a low budget film and the, you know, it's pretty obvious why he's looking at his hand there and it it is superficially ludicrous because yeah as you said they're like we don't have tom savini on this picture <laughs> you know basically we're not going to be showing this knife going into this girl so what do we do nah you know he'll just he'll just look to the side but the fact that it's consistent with a reading on the film and on michael and on what's going on with michael is an indicator of how well the film plays this ambiguity. And again, what makes the film on some level so durable is the fact that we can interpret it in so many different ways and just speaks to that, the enduring power of not making everything like Hollywood loves to do a clearly defined decision that has to be expositionally laid out for you. Like this movie really benefits from its enigmatic quality. And that's a great example of it. And, and part of why it's fun to still look at it all these years later. Luke, what do you think about that? Horror is best when it's unexplained. As soon as you get a, a clear explanation of why the ghost is doing what it's doing, it's not scary anymore. And, and this movie is is very good at leaving things up to you. I sometimes wish it had made a decision, but uh, overall, I do like movies that are on the side of of giving you giving you the responsibility of figuring it out. It almost takes on like a, a tarot card quality, right? Like you're looking at an image, and you know it represents a whole bunch of things, but it's got um, it's a pretty simple image, but it's got a lot going on in it that's there to be interpreted, which is overall good. Um, but yeah, but sometimes I wish it had made a clear decision about what exactly Michael is. Um, I, I tend to give a lot of credence to Loomis's speeches about how he's pure evil. But when he became pure evil and how is, yeah, I guess that's a good question. Rich, do you like this whole Rorschach test quality of Michael? I'm more of a cult of Thorin guy myself, but... <laughs> Best mythology in the business. <laughs> really pays off in Halloween 6. We really mm -hmm. tied it all together, you know? I mean, look, I think it works for Michael. I think it makes Michael, I think it gives Michael his indelibility. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with it as like an across-the-board uh, principle for horror. Yeah, I, I respect your, your take on it, Vic. 
Well, um, we couldn't talk about this sequence without at least touching on something that much fun has been made of by us and others about the fact that uh, the filmmakers decided to fit an off-screen sex scene into a very brief, continuous take. So if as filmmakers you suggest that a couple go upstairs, have sex, and the guy comes back downstairs afterwards, all in the same shot with no cuts to bridge time, you are definitely you have to know what you're saying about this this kid. Uh, he's a minute man. But what struck me on this watch was that when the boyfriend leaves, he says, uh, it's really late, Judith. I'd better get home. And we know for a fact that it's earlier than 9 p.m. because Judith says that's when her parents are coming home. So uh, apparently the way I read this contextually is what she's really saying is, hey, it's 9.55. I know you. You've got plenty of time to bang me and be out by 9.58 <laughs> because they do show up at the end of this single take. Not very much time passes between the guy leaving and Michael killing Judith. The only explanation for that, other than they kind of knew, would be Mr. and Mrs. Myers come home really early, which I guess is fine, but it still makes the thing play kind of funny. Uh, and I would assume on in this scenario, it's unintentionally. So anyone have any thoughts about that aspect of this? Hymns.com. Check it out. They've got pills for every problem <laughs> you might have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say like, is this the briefest on screen sex scene in cinema history? And then I'm like, no, like they purposely have had for comedic and otherwise purposes, dudes um let's say finish a little early many times in movies but uh yeah it it still kind of stands out so my next point then would be what if the clown mask isn't lying there in the doorway upstairs does michael not kill judith or does he just go find a mask to put on i mean he's already in a in a clown suit so I would imagine the mask was part of his costume and he felt ownership over the, the mask already. It makes sense that that he would pick it up. But this also kind of begins the idea that for Michael, any mask will do. And he obviously chooses a favorite to stick with once he uh, makes that decision. But across the franchise, Michael wears other masks a lot more often than Jason does. I mean, Jason clearly has two, if you consider a burlap mask, uh, a burlap sack to be a mask. And that's end of story. Whereas I think that the masks for Michael are just kind of part of the Halloween thing. The idea that Halloween itself, the holiday is and the idea of wearing these different guises. I think that's part of Michael's psychology. So I wanted to throw that out there. I mean, it seems like there's a, almost like a bit of incongruity to it, really. Like, so in the version where he's a child, like, sure, you could say that he's like putting on a persona. Like, again, like, like well, let's like run with the idea that this kid is like already the blank slate, you know? So it's like the mask is essentially donning a personality that doesn't otherwise exist. Whereas as an adult, ultimately like the costume of choice that Michael settles on is just a blank slate. Like he's just a blank slate, putting a blank slate on as his costume. <laughs> um, so yeah. there's no indication yeah. that like, he's really like 
hiding behind a mask or like taking on some sort of personality with a mask or in some way it's sort of being a, you know, uh, this, this thing that allows him to cross the thin line between sane and unsane, which is, I guess, I don't, I don't mean to keep reaching for the zombie one, but like zombie tried to explore this stuff, right. When he was doing his, his, um, his, his backstory. So it's like, I, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, it, it feels like you're getting two different stories when it comes to the relationship to uh, a costume from the, the kid to the adult and like why a clown, you know, of all the things that they could have gone with, like why a clown. Cons are scary, dude. <laughs> clowns like got scary over time. Clowns, clowns weren't considered scary in the seventies. I don't think, I think that evolved as a, as a cultural yeah. thing for us. You know, I, I feel like they're they're almost right. for some sort of reaching for some sort of like irony here when he's a when he's a child where it's like oh he's dressed as like a you know like a funny clown like isn't it scary to have like a funny clown killing you which now that I say it out loud yes that mm-hmm. does sound scary I I sense an innocence from his whole look you're right well I think what I would what pops into my head uh, John because you you mentioned Jason Voorhees in his two. Uh, face coverings, masks, the burlap sack. Jason wears those things because he is physically deformed, right? He is trying to hide in an ugly uh, visage that he he's learned from the from the world is something that needs to be concealed, right? I think Michael yeah. is trying to, the argument you could make, I guess, is that Michael is hiding something ugly inside of him. And that that's the the mask is a, is more of a metaphorical covering of this monster that he knows himself to be. And I would note, by the way, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he doesn't have the mask on when the boyfriend leaves. Right. Uh, uh, no, no. He picks it up on the way when he goes up the stairs. Exactly. So the boyfriend it just in terms of the interpretations of why he's doing this, if it was about the irresponsibility of teenagers, why does he let the boyfriend go? This lends itself much more to the the sort of incestuous idea that maybe that's why he stabs his sister, that he can't he doesn't we can't do it until he has the mask on. He doesn't murder until he's got something covering him. Now, even that doesn't hold up throughout the film, obviously. But uh, I think there there are some interpretations of it that it's less about the exterior appearance than it is about concealing something within it, whether it's a clown mask or a, a you know, a spray painted William Shatner mask. Uh, no, I, I just want to totally jump in and agree. That's totally borne out when um, he's fighting Laurie at the end and she knocks his mask a little bit loose. He lets go of her to, to readjust it and put it back over his face. I mean, there's a plot, a practical mm-hmm. plot point too. like Dr. Loomis has to see who it is before he shoots him. But yeah, that totally bears out that he he can't go on with killing her if his mask is off. He's got to put it back on before he can finish the job. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I noticed that in this watch that he he seems thrown. You know, he he very deliberately. Oh, gotta get the mask back on. You know, before he proceeds with with coming at her. But my take on it. And again, nobody knows because he's a blank slate, but my take on it is more that he's doing it for the victim's sake, their perspective, what it does to them more than out of any insecurity on his part. 
I don't read like, yes, I read Jason as being, has, has fundamental insecurity, which is what Vic was talking about. You know, like he feels vulnerable without the mask in some way. I don't think Michael Myers feels vulnerability while. Yeah. I, I just said, I agreed with Luke's point and I, you know, it, it's right there. That's a data point. It seems to throw him. I still kind of think of Michael as being someone who uses masks entirely within the psychology of this mischievous, maliciously mischievous Halloween spirit, which likes to scare people and fuck with people. And when I say fuck with people, I'm thinking about when he puts on the the sheet and Bob's glasses, you know, for no good goddamn reason, except to just mess with Linda, you know, like, I think that is a, a part of this, just this movie, at least we can put aside sequels. I think this Michael Myers has this sort of, you know, in the spirit of trick or treat somehow, like he's just kind of motivated to be, there's a game he's playing games with, with people and that's borne out when he literally creates a haunted house for Lori later in the film with the tombstone and all of that. And, you know, it's almost choreographed. This body comes swinging in and, and so on. So I think there's, there's a, there's a fair bit of evidence that this Michael is on his level, having fun with people. Wouldn't it have been great if he'd had a boner when he put the sheet on over Linda, like they cut to that wide shot of him, and it had just been poking out. Like, <laughs> the you, you know, you, you, Vic, you you make that joke, and I haven't seen all the scary movies, but that's probably in there somewhere it's in the scary movie franchise. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a no-brainer. You guys had to have done that, right? <laughs> all right, so. Um, Michael's escape. So Loomis and the nurse, they've come to the institution, Smith's Grove, to collect Michael and bring him before a judge. So the question becomes, that wouldn't be necessary unless Michael was about to be released soon. And Loomis doesn't want that, right? I mean, that's kind of my reading. That's why Loomis is here. And, you know, he's going to kind of advocate for the prosecution, so to speak. So Michael breaks out right before he was about to be let out anyway, unless Loomis finally convinced someone how dangerous Michael was, which apparently is something he's really struggled to do. And I want to observe at this moment that he's not particularly articulate in making his argument at any point in this film. And he mostly just comes off as a loon himself to a degree, of course, a well-meaning loon, a harmless loon, but uh, maybe he is a little crazy. And I, I was thinking about this just tonight, you know, maybe a lot of the things that Loomis says and does in the film, things that I have been questioning, they make more sense if you're operating under the assumption that Michael has already driven Loomis more than a bit nuts. And I think that that interpretation is certainly there in Donald Pleasance's performance. But Loomis just kind of never says, look, this guy, he kills without compunction. He doesn't need a reason. You, you don't want this guy on the street. End of story. He always has to kind of get weird and metaphysical about it. And that's a big part of why 
nobody seems to uh, give him the credibility that he probably deserves. So yeah, let's, let's touch on, on this, you know, real quick. Let's let's, this is your chance to discuss Loomis a little bit. We're going to talk about Loomis plenty in the course of this, but in regards to this character, Vic weigh in on what I just said in some way. It, it's a cool take. I mean, it, it reminds me of the in the comic version of the Watchmen. There's a whole there's a whole section where Rorschach drives his drives his psychiatrist insane. Um, that didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't make the cut for the film, but uh, I, yeah, like I can see if you were only treating Michael Myers, or certainly if he was taking up the the bulk of your time. By the way. We do learn that at least for six months, Loomis was with this kid for four hours a day. Like he, he has spent a ton of time with Michael Myers to your point. It, it, he had plenty of exposure to potentially drive him crazy. Yeah. Now all that said, I'm, uh, (laughs) I'm not convinced that Michael Myers could convince a judge that he wasn't a danger to society. Like, like in a court, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I'm not sure Loomis needed to be that worried about it. Uh, so I, no I, kidding. What I'm saying is I don't think that Michael was on the verge of getting out. Uh, I think that they were obviously, he was, as is the case, uh, because it's near Halloween, so they must be transferring Michael Myers somewhere. Uh, so yeah, they got him out of his cell to take him down to, to give him Thorazine and prep him to be moved or whatever, and that's when he orchestrated this escape. I actually like, I mean, A, I love the image of the patients like milling around outside, uh, even though we get the nurse's very <laughs> dumb line, they don't let them out here in the rain like this, do they? <laughs> No, lady, no, they don't. Obviously. What kind of nurse are you? Um, She's sort of uh, discounting his professionalism and being utterly unprofessional unprofessional at the same time. Like, their dialogue is weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's not well well scripted. I agree. But uh, so I love that image. But I also love that they leave the escape to our imagination. You know, that we don't actually know what happened or how we got out. And I feel like that's something obviously Rob Zombie tackled. And in just subsequent Halloween movies, we get these sort of silly explanations for how Michael gets out of this or that institution. And it was much better. That's one of those things that I think was much better left to our imagination. I wish maybe they had referenced like how many bodies he'd left in his wake or something. But uh, uh, other than that, I, I actually think it's pretty well executed on that front. From a dialogue front, less so. Well, they had the opportunity to have just dropped one line at any point, like, or any killed four people, like, escaping from Smith, Smith's Grove. They don't take that opportunity because, uh, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. It's not a budgetary decision to just have a character, you know, give a drop a couple of lines about how, you know, he drowned Danny Trejo in a in a janitor's <laughs> Uh, bucket or something, you know, they could have thrown that in free of charge, but uh, the film decides to suggest, or at least imply he doesn't kill anybody escaping from Smith's Grove. No, if, if anything, he just frees a bunch of other people. Like it's actually a very, it's a very generous escape. Like he just broke the place <laughs> <Yeah>. wide open. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, like Robin Williams as the as the shape, you know, like the kind of the the the, the nice crazy guy who's just like <laughs> on his like the Fisher King Robin Williams is what I'm thinking of there, right? Uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> what I when I was watching that scene, I didn't really have a. I, I thought one thing was great about it, which was that um, they're just sort of having their conversation in the car, and then Loomis's tone changes completely when he says pull around to the front or something. And his tone just switches from like talking about evil to like, suddenly he's very tense. And that, that whole scene hinges on the way he delivers that line. I thought that was just so well done from a, like a, a technical standpoint, I guess, or an actorly standpoint. But, and the image of just all the, you only see it for a couple seconds, all the, all the patients wandering around. I thought that was great. I, I don't want to know like how he got out. What did he crawl through an air vent? Who cares? Like I, I thought it was great the way it was done. That, that worked for me completely. Yeah, I'm going to kick it back to Rich here, but my last comment about the the sequence is just that Michael shows no interest in killing the nurse or Loomis here. All he wants is that car. I mean, the second he can just hightail it out of there, he does. And I think that that makes the scene notable because it's a little out of character for him and for one of these iconic slasher killers in the whole you know canon of slasher movies. In the in this sequence, at least. Murder, murder does not seem to be the priority for Michael and escape is the only priority. Like he could have easily stuck around and killed those two if he just went into, you know, his little stock mode. But no, all he wants is to get behind the wheel and drive away. He's got a plan, which is very. Again, like after all this time, like he has a very distinct plan in terms of what he needs, like what he wants, where he wants to go, what he needs to get there. And it feels impressively orchestrated for someone of his means and situation. Especially considering that then he spends the rest of the movie seemingly, in many ways, kind of aimlessly wandering around, or at least following a a pretty unclear trajectory in terms of who he's going to stalk and, and when um, like it almost becomes stream of consciousness, but he knows that he needs to get back to Haddonfield and, you know, to the grave, I guess. But like, what is his agenda? You know, like, what is the, like, like he has a checklist that he's exiting this hospital with, get a car, get to Haddonfield. Like what's his plan? Well, it seems like his real well, destination is home. Once he gets, cause yeah. he gets to his, he gets to his home and that and and I, I suppose visits the graveyard first. I don't have that timeline uh, in in my head when he stole the the gravestone. Um, but that that's what he wanted was to get home, you know, for Halloween. It's like planes, trains, and automobiles, but with a psychopath. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's only so it's when he's home is when Lori and Tommy show up, and that's when his his attention gets diverted, and he starts to find. Uh, the next series of things. If that hadn't happened, if, if Lori hadn't dropped off those keys, I suspect that Loomis and the sheriff would have just found Michael Myers in his house. I think that's a very valid point because whatever we know about his decision making, clearly, once he sees Lori, he locks in on her. You know, there's a little deviation like, well, who are the people around her? But you kind of know that even when he's messing around or just following the people around her, it's just 
direct in relation to Lori in some way, but he picks Lori and everything is forever after that point, clearly orchestrated directly or indirectly around her. But we also know he seems extremely focused and driven on just getting to Haddonfield. Yeah. Getting to home, getting back into that house up until that point. So we will never know. I think your theory is certainly worthy of consideration, Vic, what what he would have done if Lori hadn't happened to come by. And the next scene I think that we should talk about is of course the dropping off the keys scene, but uh, this would probably be a chance if anyone needs to use the restroom, grab another beverage. Uh, let's do that first. All right. Well, we just had a little break for the bathroom and to refresh our beverages. Uh, everyone's dying to know out there. Uh, Rich, are you still on the water? Or it looks like you have a soda in your hand. What's that? I have a cherry bubbly. Ah, nice. Okay. So you uh, have not hit the wine. I have not hit the wine. Like I said, I might get there. We'll see. All right. Well, we're not off the rails enough to motivate Rich to drink on a school night just <laughs> yeah. yet. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to be crazier and more long-winded. Uh, yeah, I, I refilled my... Actually, I, I, I busted out the, the skull mug, which is one of our... Finally, Luke gets to see, uh, you know, this is the behold the skull mug. Anyway, well, after all these uh, years of hearing about it, finally we meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just filled with uh, Miller Lite. Did uh, you guys, Vic, Luke, did you refill your beverages in an exciting way? No, just just uh, a second gunny. Nice. I, I, uh, I omitted the middleman of vermouth and just put a little of the rye into a glass. Nice. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I respect that decision. Yeah, definitely a decision you will not come to regret. <laughs> <laughs> it's Friday yeah, night. Who needs fine. <laughs> it's Friday, right? <laughs> so dropping off the keys, as this sequence starts, we get a glimpse of Mr. Strode himself, uh, Laurie's dad, and he looks like a realtor. Yeah, he's got a couple of lines and apparently there's so little local legend surrounding Michael Myers, at least uh, to Mr. Strode's knowledge, that Lori's own father sends her to the Myers house alone without a second thought. Yes, it's daytime and it's been a number of years, but uh, if I was a dad, I might run that particular errand myself. And of course, as we've just touched on, the movie certainly suggests that Lori's errand is what attracts Michael's interest to her. They're not siblings yet in the lore of the series, but I still kind of read this whole beginning of the sequence as good going, dad. Just put your daughter directly on the slasher killer's radar so you don't have to drop off some house keys. Father of the year. As a dad, I... 100% support uh, pawning off any chore or errand that you can on your kids. <laughs> Send them to the scary house the kids are terrified to go into. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, listen. I haven't had the bathroom to myself in eight years. You go to the, you go to the Myers house. I'm going to stay home and take a shit, okay? 
<laughs> yeah. If, if if anything, I'm disappointed that Lori doesn't get Tommy to do it for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shit rolls downhill. You got to learn that early, kid. I was just thinking with Vic's comment, like John Carpenter goes to the actor playing Mr. Strode. He's like, your subtext here is you really need to take a shit. So <laughs> you send her off to run your errand because you got a crap, man. And this is your chance. <laughs> you know, what would be really great is if then Lori handed the keys to Tommy and was like, you drop these off. I'm going to go take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I like Lori's confidence here about this errand. Like, she's not freaked out about anything that Tommy is whinging about. And 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 her response, well, Lonnie Elam probably won't get out of the sixth grade to neutralize Tommy's concerns just indicates that Lori is no lightweight. Now, I think we're going to undermine this in a couple different places, which is fine. But uh, I think part of this sequence is establishing that Lori is at the outset. There's at least some courage here and the movie's going to kind of go back and forth on that point. But our takeaway from this scene is she's not afraid of that, that nonsense or, or whatever. I think that's correct. And I think that that goes back to one of the, the sort of earlier readings I was talking about, you know, the idea that there's some kind of supernatural force in Michael. And so the idea that, that there is this ongoing discussion about the existence or non-existence of the boogeyman, which, of course, culminates in those final lines. And so, in, in, again, in, in one of these essays I read, uh, they said in this reading, it's almost as though Michael appears simply to prove wrong those who doubt the existence of the supernatural which is something we get from Lori very early on in this scene. And then even later on, you have her, uh, you know, saying, oh, you're, you, you know, thought you outgrew your superstitions or something like that. Oh, fantastic point, Vic. Yes. I was going to mention the superstition line in a different context later, but like we've been kind of debating this idea idea of Michael as a tabula rasa and, you know, you project whatever you want onto him. But one thing that is like overtly text and not subtext in this movie is this exact arc that you're talking about, which is the idea of the boogeyman. I mean, like many, many lines of dialogue are strategically placed throughout the film to build to that final exchange between Loomis and Laurie Strode. Was that the boogeyman? I believe it was right. So like we're building to that as this big pinnacle that you're supposed to walk out of the movie. And that's like the last exchange of the film. So yeah, we're not, we're not being coy. We're not being ambiguous. This isn't a, budgetary decision, you know, like the script, the filmmakers, the editors, the producers, everybody signed off on that being pivotal somehow. And I also think as the sequence ends, it's cool how long we linger on Michael, just kind of watching Lori slowly walk away down the sidewalk. And this is one of the cases where I think the dread builds perfectly. And the duration of the sequence is entirely appropriate 
and there's no musical score from Carpenter. It's just this eerie silence. And I think that silence in a movie that benefits tremendously from the score. I mean, I think the score does a lot of heavy lifting for the film in terms of setting the mood. It's very powerful. But here, the silence, I think, uh, is equally powerful. Okay, well, after that, the classroom scene. The first thing I'll call attention to with you guys is that we get that Laurie Strode is so quick on her feet that she can be totally distracted by the creepy dude who's apparently watching her from across the street, or at least staring at the school that she's in, and still knock her English teacher's question out of the park. I think we're consciously, on a script level, building Lori up as a character here in terms of her bona fides. And it's also interesting to me that with this version iteration of, of Michael's mask and the lighting that the film uses, especially outdoors, you're probably, I'm trying to imagine what it was like to watch the movie the first time, especially like in the theater when nobody, you know, saw Michael before and you don't know what you're looking at in the sequence and a couple others in the daylight scenes, you're just seeing this mask and I think people are squinting at Michael in these early stalking sequences in Haddonfield and really just kind of asking basic questions like, what's up with that dude's face? Like, is he wearing a mask? What's happening? Because, you know, he's always kind of far away initially. And I, I, I love that. And I think that's one of the things that really works. And I'll, I'll point out here that they considered using the Spock mask instead of the Kirk mask. Um, they considered a Richard Nixon mask. They considered the clown mask to, to match the opening sequence. But this mask creates that really cool ambiguity. And in contrast to the sequel masks, I think this one avoids the pitfall of being so like garishly white that it stands out so much that it's obviously artificial and you lose detail in all of that white on camera. I think this, this mask has a face that is disquietingly off for sure, but you can still make out the, the, the nuances and the details and you see a man's face. Well, one thing I'll say about the, 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 well, two things that stand out to me. One is that <clears throat> you mentioned the color and I was reading a description of this elsewhere where they actually described the, the, the color that they painted the mask as 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 a as a blue white, and it does have a really like kind of blue tint to it in a way that is sort of evocative of a of a corpse. Like a, a corpse isn't white, you know. Like a corpse turns blue. So there is something that is both like kind of like human and and at the same time inanimate about it. The other thing about the classroom scene that that like you're pointing out is that you know it's it's not just that people around town are sort of squinting at Michael, but like we, the audience are, are squinting at Michael at this point. Like he's not only being shot from across the street, he's being shot through a window and not only that, but it's a window with like the blinds drawn down. So it's like, there's definitely several progressive layers that we're having to get through in order to actually recognize Michael for, for what he is. Yes. Yes. Uh, I love that. That sort of corpse like pallor is a big part of why it's so unsettling. I want to point out too, that the, the actual answer that she gives and i don't i'm sure there's probably stuff about the full context of of what she's talking about the actual answer that laurie gives is samuels felt that fate was a like a natural element like earth air fire and water 
And the teacher says, that's right, Samuel's definitely personified fate. And that doesn't seem like a like an accidental quote. Um, and I wonder how much they're, they're sort of alluding to the idea of Michael Myers as the personification of fate, you know, sort of, I don't know, death or something sort of barreling down on Laurie. I'm going to throw this to Luke, but yes, I think the classic device here of a classroom discussion blatantly stating a film's themes or at least ideas it wants to deal with. I think we really hit the beat hard here that Michael Myers is a personification of fate. He's unchanging like a mountain. And it also had stated in Samuel's book that, that for the characters, fate was inescapable. So it is suggesting that Michael Myers will be inescapable for the characters in this story. Well, okay, but so what exactly is inescapable? Is it just the idea of death is inescapable? Or is there something specific to Lori that is her fate? And then she does kind of escape it. All her friends get killed. But because she's a very responsible, good babysitter who's not obsessed with guys, you know, um, with sex, right? She doesn't commit that horror movie sin. She lives, right? So... Is that does she get away from her fate? I mean, obviously, it's a pretty mixed bag because she survives, but all her friends are dead. <laughs> like that's not. Great. Well, not only that, yeah, not only that, like he's still out there at the end of right. the film. Yes, right. that's a good point. But good point. I I do I do think that 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 it it it's somewhat undermining the idea of this speech this classroom scene that uh the the movie definitely doesn't seem to land on the idea that laurie's fate is to be killed by this guy like that's certainly not the outcome uh of the film but i think the the movie definitely draws the parallel the strong connection not parallel between fate and death and that's where yeah michael represents the fate that we all, all share like okay michael is the meta a metaphor for death but death is the fate the one fate that we all share right we're all going to die we all have sure. that in common so that's kind of my interpretation in some way going back to the what i was talking about a little bit earlier one of the things that 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 is suggested is that the the fate is this that Laurie's rationalist view of the world uh, that there is no boogeyman that that there's nothing to be afraid of on Halloween night is is on a collision course with whatever this supernatural element that Michael Myers is. I think the more dominant concept, as we'll start to, to find as we watch what Lori's progression through the film is, is that she starts out essentially under the veneer of, of strength. She's actually more in denial of evil and danger. And it's the veneer of strength because she is assuming on some level 
that society herself, her neighborhood, her family, her friends have transcended danger. And that at this point it's only superstition and that fear is an atavistic concept in some way that we have moved beyond. And the film is making her reconcile in a hard way, a hard reconciliation with the idea that danger is never behind us and that you will have to be strong. You will have to be brave. You will be challenged. You will be tested. You cannot pretend otherwise. That's one of what I think is actually what's happening as you see her reject the the sense of fear. I'm going to talk about this. And it annoyed me, honestly, throughout the film, how she keeps saying, oh, it's nothing. Oh, I don't have to worry about that. You know, oh, Tommy's bitching about this guy out there, but I'm sure it's not the guy who's already scared me three times. You know, like it kind of annoys the fuck out of me. But what I'm kind of hoping to give the movie a little credit with, it's that she comes in with this construct of reality and her life and society that is just being threatened and challenged. And she clings to her, her feeling that everything is okay to the bitter end. But then eventually she rises to the challenge that she must in order to survive and protect her charges in the form of the kids that she's uh, responsible for. Well, and Michael really does like he, he, gets through every mechanism that's designed to keep people safe, right? Like he gets out of the mental institution that had him locked away. The, you know, Dr. Loomis psychiatry can't solve what's wrong with him or identify what his sickness is. The police are helpless to try and stop him. And even the parents that are supposed to be sort of the last line of defense in society are all absent. They're all off at, we assume, swinger parties. Um, yeah, but yeah I, I think there's I think there's something to that, that that Michael does seem to move through all these different systems that are set up to protect us until Laurie is just left alone with him. Let's not forget the dogs. He's also the dogs are no match for him. It's true. He eats the dogs. Not, not one, but two dogs. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to the stalking Tommy sequence, which immediately follows Michael observing Laurie from across the street in her classroom, which kind of implies that the high school and the elementary school are are next door, which is certainly not uncommon. So Tommy leaves his, his school and we have the classic Michael Myers beat, which they return to three or four times in different movies that some kid walks right into Michael Myers on the street and, you know, Michael gives him a scare, but he, he lets him go. You know, he's not, he, he doesn't kill any of these kids. And so it kind of raises the question, is Michael open to targeting Tommy here? Or again, like I suggested earlier, it's just that he saw Lori and Tommy together at the Myers house and he's kind of thinking maybe I'll trail Tommy home because that could prove useful down the road and finding Lori again. And, you know, I'm interested in the people around Lori. Um, but I will note that 
with the range of this situation and he's following a kid on foot, Michael could easily follow in this elementary school kid on foot, but he gets behind the wheel of a car in order to do so. And he follows him for like a block and then he just drives on by, which suggests to me, I want to hear what you guys think, but Michael was leaving the high school area for whatever reason at this point. Like, okay. He's like, I know Lori's in school. I know where she goes to school. I spot the kid that Lori was with before. I'll follow him a little ways for recon purposes, but I'm just kind of on my way returning back to the car and I'm on to wherever I go. Maybe it's to get the, you know, maybe it's to get the tombstone. I don't know. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my, where I'm at with this sequence. I'd really like to start a new metal band called the stalking Tommy sequence. Can we start there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, or at least like some nouveau art cinema collective. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, this, this whole thing has this like weird vibe. Like he's like kind of killing time, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. Like there's there's no sense of urgency to his investigation um in this in this scene. Like he is just kind of trailing him. I mean, your idea that he is just in Lori's orbit. I mean, did Lori shake him though? Like uh, like I'm trying to think of like where it is that he lost that connection. I think she's in school. Regained it. Well, so is Tommy theoretically. I guess he just got released. I mean, this is our whole thing about how like man, Maybe this was me listening to the previous podcast that that, that uh, high schoolers get out of school later than middle schoolers. Um, someone made that point, so I guess that's why. Oh, Tommy's really? Like, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you guys, you guys were so wise. God, we were so smart back in 2015. Uh-huh. So yeah, I guess that's it. Maybe Tommy's just out first, so he's he's the first opportunity. I don't. I will say visually, like there's something striking about this this scene too. That, that's also it's 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 shot. You know, this this movie this, uh, plays so much with point of view shots, and there's a good portion of this sequence that's shot from the back seat of this state police vehicle. So you're constantly looking through the the, the bars of the the whatever you call the the partition that that, that goes between the, the yeah. police and the and the and the criminal. Um, so you're sort of viewing this whole thing through a through a greater bars, which seems like an interesting choice for a movie that's being so considerate of like what point of view the camera is taking. I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I guess I'm not quite sure what to make of it, except like you said, he just kind of has, he has her scent on him. And so he's trailing him. I love the way this is shot. I mean, it's such a great scene as, as uh, in the car, the shot you're talking about as we're cruising along. And yeah, for whatever reason, we're looking out the back, passenger window instead of what would be the driver's perspective or the driver's side passenger seat. But it's just, it's a cool sequence. I like the ambiguity of it. I mean, I think this, this lends itself to a lot of our earlier discussion that Michael is kind of wandering around and this kid runs into him and it's like, Nope, not him. And he's going to follow Tommy for a little while until he goes, Nope, not him. And he's going to move on. But so it's I don't understand the criteria that he's using as he's as he's making these decisions uh, ostensibly with every person he passes. Right. 
but it does seem to indicate that there is criteria. And that's where Michael, to me, is not he's not a totally blank slate. It's just that we don't understand the writing that's on it. You know, so there's there's a little bit of information there, uh, but you can't quite intuit all of it. But so, yeah, it's it's it just speaks to me that Michael has some kind of process. He has some kind of inner life, but that we it's just something we're not privy to because we're, you know, sane. (laughs) Yeah, I was almost wondering if he ruled out pursuing Tommy as a target because Tommy was already being pursued by the the bullies at school. Like on some level, he connected with Tommy or saw him as a younger version of himself. Maybe he was a target in, as a kid or something. But then I think that doesn't really jive with what we know of Michael Myers as being pure evil, at least as presented by Loomis, right? So um, I, I didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, it ends up being kind of an ambiguous sequence for me also. Um, but it was interesting, but, but I couldn't really resolve it into anything. I've definitely had that thought before, Luke, about like – that Michael's identifying with Tommy as a as a child and sort of a bullying victim. I mean, the the script makes Tommy a, a very uh, empathetic character, right? Like it's somebody that you you sort of feel for. And so I, you know, I don't like is are we reaching for some like kernel of humanity in Michael that's like eh, I'm gonna let that one go. <laughs> that kid's that kid's got enough going on. <laughs> I don't know. Right, we're giving we're, we're giving Michael a redeeming feature. <laughs> yeah, I but like I think that that's the sort of thing that has crossed my mind, you know, a couple of times over however many viewings of this movie. So no, I definitely I've definitely had that same thought too. Well, well, again, Vic, Vic, you're you're presupposing that he's looking for someone to harm. Like you're 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 making it sound like he's shopping for a victim. Whereas, like, I don't know that my read is that as much as, like, he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. Like, he's just doing, I mean, he doesn't have a job. This is his job, you know? Like, he's just, like, he's basically just someone who's been unemployed for six months. And, like, they don't, they're not sure why they're doing anything anymore. Like, they're just hanging out, you know, in the parking lot at Sonic because what else are they going to (laughs) do? You have a sort of wistful quality there when you say that, that Rich. Uh, you could probably use a vacation, man. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, these are all really interesting. This is food for thought. I, I will say that I love, as you guys know, sort of identifying the granular differences between a certain movies in this whole, these franchises differences from the characterizations of that 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 slasher killer in other films and i think that one of the hallmarks of this michael that's unique to this original film is man this guy really takes his sweet time killing people like you know you really have to he's gonna circle you for a while before he kills you and I, I think that it's consistent with just what we what we know about him based on how he approaches Annie and Linda and Bob and ultimately Lori that, you know, like he's not he's certainly not looking to just put a quick knife in somebody because they're within arm's reach at all. Like whatever. And I like the the sort of cryptic criteria that that Vic is alluding to that he has that, that we just don't understand, but he definitely 
is going to kill someone when he's good and ready, not because they're a target of opportunity. So whether or not like towards the end of this night, if he happened to run into Tommy and Lindsay after killing, uh, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, would he, would he, would he kill them? I don't know. Maybe, maybe at that point he's like, you guys are ready to be killed. You know, we, we don't know, but, (laughs) um, I mean like you could, or you could draw the distinction that the dude is all about killing dogs, but kids, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kill a kid, Uh, but we don't, I don't think we have any evidence, you know, of that really. Well, he does. Uh, I he think, does spend three movies trying to kill his niece, who is roughly Tommy's age. So, at least in future iterations, Michael has no compunctions about killing a kid. Yes, and I, I would just amend that we don't know the situation with the first dog that he apparently eats, but uh, the second dog, Lester, is definitely fucking with him in a way that. Uh, the kid in the parking lot of the elementary school that he runs into or Tommy do not, you know, like the dog is giving away his position by barking, if not, you know, alerting the people, if not actively threatening Michael's personal safety with a bite. So it's a lot. I'm just saying it's a lot closer to self-defense when he kills Lester then when he's confronted with the child. Got it. John. Lester, Lester was asking for it. Got it. Okay. Good. <laughs> Fucking dog. <laughs> you know, a cat wouldn't have pulled that shit. <laughs> <laughs> so the next big sequence is suburban stalking. As I, as I call it, this is exhibit C or D of this Michael Myers being a car killer. And I'll, I'll talk about this a bit as we go, but I, I just think it's almost a pivotal part of this particular killer's MO in this movie that the dude drives a car. And we're, we're really going to start getting that in the first half of the movie. And then it's totally dropped, but I think there's reasons why it's dropped that are logical. And, it kind of culminates in the speed kills sequence. But in general, the suburban stalking stuff, I think the movie gets across the feeling of stalking and being stalked better than any slasher movie I can think of. This is one of the big selling points for this film, I think. There's no Friday the 13th movie that quite gets it right and as artfully as the John Carpenter Halloween. It just has the best POV stuff. You get the feeling that these girls are always being watched. And unlike, say, Friday the 13th Part 2, not by just anyone, but always by a malevolent force. So dialing in on the specific sequence where Lori and Annie have already said farewell to Linda, and they're about to have another encounter with Michael... Laurie's second and and first real in-person encounter. He's driven around the block and parked after the speed kills thing, which you guys can double back to if you want. But 
Then he walks out in front of Laurie and Annie on the sidewalk and he's well ahead of them and, and semi behind a hedge, but we, we see him and I assume Laurie and Annie see him. And the thing I want to, I'll, I'll leave it here. It's interesting to me that Laurie is not the brave one in this particular sequence. It's actually Annie who stomps ahead to confront the guy who's messing with them. And Lori just lets Annie walk right on over there by herself. Lori seems almost frozen with fear. As I suggested earlier, like we're kind of in Lori's character arc. It's kind of two steps forward, one step back. You know, you initiate her as this kind of brave character. And here we totally undermine that. And I, I do think it's clearly a caution is the better part of valor situation because it's a sensible amount of trepidation in a scenario where there may be danger, but there's no good reason to put yourself in it. Like she doesn't have to save her, the kids she's babysitting or Annie or anything else. Like she has no reason to go confront this dude. So I totally get that, but I like that it gives us somewhere to go with Laurie Strode because this is a hero who will ultimately do what they must afraid or not when they have to face danger for one reason or another. But in this situation, like she's not the type of person who's just going to go like chew this dude out. Two things I want to say about the, the, this whole sequence. Number one, I think uh, talking about the, the sense of safety that we have in a suburban environment is one of those things where Annie feels totally fine shouting, hey, jerk, speed kills, because she's in the middle of a neighborhood in broad daylight and whatever else. And that moment when he slams on the brakes, is it shatters that sense of safety where you go, oh, fuck. Like, what if it's Michael Myers in that car that you just shouted at? Um, because I think the fact that he slams on the brakes, again, communicates that he – Heard her, didn't like it, (laughs) and has to stop and think about what he's going to do about it, you know? And, like, what he elects to do is move on, but, uh, wow, it's just – it's such a moment uh, of breaking that that sense of security that we all have, you know, walking down a neighborhood street. The other point I was just going to make is I think that – while while uh, Lori is not demonstrating uh, bravery necessarily, I think she's the smart one, which is the other characteristic that she displays. She recognizes that this is not somebody you actually want to fuck with. Uh, and, and so I think that was uh, uh, also sort of indicative of her character. And yes, like giving her uh, uh, some room as well, John. I, I, I appreciated your take on that as well. When I was a kid... I was probably seven or eight. Me and some friends yelled at a car that was driving by, and it, it screeched to a halt in the middle of the road. And as a kid, you suddenly realized, like, you, you, felt, you felt like you knew the rules. And when an adult-driven car screeches to a halt, suddenly you realize you don't know what rules apply anymore. And I think that that is exactly what is in Laurie's head when they see him lean out from the head. She's, she, suddenly she doesn't know. She knows that it, the rules are, are changing. So it makes a lot of sense for her to not be the brave one there. She's being the sensible one. I don't know if bravery is really her 
things, being sensible throughout is definitely her thing. That's a great point about the rules and feeling like you know the rules and in a, in a second the rules change and you go, oh, shit, I don't know what the rules are. And you're right that she's hanging on to that in a way that Annie's not when she sees him a few minutes later. I will yeah, say I, my I, personal speed kills moment was when some guy cut me off in West Hollywood and I decided to tailgate him uh, aggressively to to make a point. And then he stopped his car and got out of his car with a tire iron and started screaming at me. At what point, at which point I realized the rules had changed. <laughs> yeah, that's a great anecdote. Yeah. Rich, I, I thought you were going to say. A guy cut me off, and, and I got out of my car with a tire iron. And then that guy realized that the rules had changed. <laughs> That's how I tell it from now on. Yeah. That's how he tells it. Yeah, on this his kind podcast. of. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's really funny. I bet that dude has covered Halloween on his podcast. (laughs) Different context. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely this kind of idea of the social contract going on here and expected behavior. And Michael breaks that expectation with the slamming on the brakes. But at the same time, I mean, we've lived in a world of road rage for a long time. And I actually don't think that this is that transgressive of an act. It seems kind of consistent with uh, what a lot of people would do, Um, especially if it wasn't like four large men yelling at the person. Um, You know, it's, it doesn't take a lot of courage to be the guy that slams on your brakes here, but it's definitely one, another piece of evidence for Lori to take seriously. And yeah, like I was saying before, just there's no dramatic stakes for her to put herself at risk here. Like she, her whole character, like you guys said, is she's sensible and, and yet though principled, like she's not going to be the coward who leaves people behind to die. But why does she just want to go fuck with this crazy dude? Like, she has no reason to do so. So that makes perfect sense. And there's, this is when I think it was uh, rich that mentioned right around here. She says she quips to herself about outgrowing superstition kiddo and chalks it up to nothing. And, and the idea is that she's so sophisticated that, you know, she realized she's above this kind of thing. And she's like, I can't believe I actually let myself be afraid of this. That's kind of the way that it, it reads. That's what the movie is somewhat telling us this, that her takeaway is I'm just being silly. And obviously that's the wrong interpretation of what's happening. When she sees him again, Almost immediately afterwards, I, I think we're up to the point now with the eternal, the classic laundry line sequence, you know, the where the, the sheets and the whites are flopping on the line and there's Michael standing there, um, which we should talk about in a, in a couple ways. But she 
only briefly deny stops denying to herself that this dude is obviously following her, which I think by this point in time is a very relatable nightmare for women in the audience. And it's been going on in any era or country. So it's something I, I grappled with a bit more in this watch. Like, that she doesn't just say, maybe, maybe I should be a little concerned about this dude. And I'm trying to like reach for reasons. And one of it is, well, it's Halloween, you know, dudes are out wearing masks and being kind of creepy, but it, it frustrated me how many times, like we're not even halfway through the warnings that Lori gets that her conclusion is I'm being silly. It's superstition. Don't worry about this guy. And I'm not loving that, guys, <laughs> at this point, <laughs> watching the movie. But realistically, what would you do, right? Like, if you saw a guy drive by and then slam on his brakes, and then later you saw him on a sidewalk, and then later you saw him out your window, would you... I guess you could call the police. I guess you would. I don't know. It, it, but it doesn't seem like a slam dunk that she would take, like, some kind of definite action to do what to get him arrested or questioned like it. I don't know. That's only um, halfway. That's only halfway. Um, she has the guy that the kid she's babysitting starts talking about this dude. And yes, he doesn't say he's wearing a blue jumpsuit and a mask, but the fact that she just dismisses Tommy out of hand after having these experiences is part of my, my problem. Like it's, we have six or seven beats where the takeaway is Lori is confronted with evidence that she is being stalked and dismisses it. Why does it have to be six or seven beats? I know for the the movie's sake, you know, on some level, we want her to, you know, not call the cops. But is it that hard to have her? tell Sheriff Brackett and he's like, ah, it's just some kid. Like he says about everything else. In this movie. <laughs> like at least then Lori would have done some due diligence and we could write it off. Right. That's a good point. You're right. Yeah. But wait, I, I'm sorry. You, you, your problem is a, is a character problem or it's a narrative problem or both. Uh, a little of both, but my, what I'm really stumbling across at the moment, having stumbling over, watching the movie again, you know, this week was Lori's final girl bona fides have taken a hit. And we all know, like, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. You know, she throws down the knife and leaves Michael for dead, like minimum twice when she shouldn't. And you can, we can get into that, but I was just really struck this time by she just has this like dogged, stubborn determination to tell herself that, oh, I'm not going to trust my lion eyes. And yeah, it might in some way be part of the whole theme I was talking about earlier that naive people thinking that the world was so safe and oh, I'm sure we have nothing to worry about out here in the suburbs and yada, yada, yada. But like, this is our protagonist and we're supposed to believe that the reason like John Carpenter has said this, 
What's the difference between her and uh, Annie and Linda? It's not that she's not doing drugs. I mean, she she has a hit off the spliff in Annie's car, and you know she's not afraid to have a little marijuana, and you know she probably bang Ben Tramer if she gets a chance tomorrow night or whatever. Like, it's not all about like she's morally better because she's the bookish girl with no boyfriend. But it's that the, the idea is that she makes it through this movie. She's the best equipped because she's just aware. She's noticing what's going on. That's that's the thesis that he has suggested. But God damn it, the movie is just suggesting time and time again that she rejects evidence that she should be worried about this. And I'm just – all I'm saying is I'm tripping over that, and it bugs me. There seems to be an element of it where the way that she's being presented anyhow is that she almost lacks the trust in herself to accept like what she's seeing. And you're right. She's presented otherwise as a character of – of confidence and whose confidence eventually, you know, results in, in strong leadership. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess the question I'd ask is like, is there a, is there a course of development there that you're tracking? I'm not saying I'm not, I mean, I think you're actually right. I think you're pointing out like a, a totally valid thing. I'm just trying to follow their train of thought. I would say I would totally agree with Rich there. Um, what, what are they, what do they, what do they think they're tracking? And I think, I think, I think that they're tracking the idea that she is the sensible one. So she's got to come to the acceptance that the rules have changed. So she's seen glimmers of that, but she, the, um, the idea, all the ideas that she's safe where she is are too deeply embedded in her for to, for her to go out of her routine. Um, just yet she will eventually, but it takes longer to get her there than movie logic would want us to, to have it happen. But in, in real life, like how, how, how many things have to go wrong before you'd be like, I saw that guy four times today. I'm going to take an action about it. I think it would be a while, right? So um, what she's doing seems sort of sensible to me. And in, in the logic of if she's – if we're just following her, waiting for her to accept the rules have changed, it makes sense to me that it's taking a while for her to get there. So I didn't find that to be the most frustrating thing, although it did drive me nuts when she stabbed him twice and then walked away. Like That drove me absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. I just I I would argue that it is I mean to to say the rules of changes is, is probably one way of saying it but that it feels like she's living in a world where things like this don't happen and what you find in the instance when she sees him at the window what grates against me is that she then takes a nap like that seems like the <laughs> that doesn't seem like the appropriate reaction. But what I actually love is when Tommy brings up, I saw the boogeyman, I saw the boogeyman, he's out there. She reacts kind of violently, you know, like it's and she's very calm as a babysitter. But with that, like you can see that her worldview is getting is is now really threatened and she's clinging to it really hard. And so that, to me, works with the arc that we're tracking uh, and, and that she really needs evidence that, that she can't turn away from, that she can't say, oh, it's just a kid. Oh, it's just this. You know, we, this is not – this doesn't happen in Haddonfield. And, and I like that about her character and I like that about her interaction with him because it does and, – and you can see in, in his performance as well, he's pretty upset by it. The, the, by her reaction to it. 
Yeah, she's defensive about it. Yeah, in that way that someone who's actually feeling vulnerable and and, and really privately questioning their assumptions. Uh, you know, and it, she and worth noting that the kids are more open to it, right? Tommy, mm-hmm. Tommy is totally prepared for a world in which the boogeyman is real and coming for him. Uh, Lori is not, and she she doesn't want to acknowledge. Uh, that that possibility or that reality until it's almost too late. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that that's a, a conscious choice, and it does sort of speak to the bubble of assumed safety that people outside of New York City, for example, started to experience post-war. In sort of, you know, beginning with the idealized sense of the 50s and the safety that people perceived. And the 80s were really where a lot of those assumptions started to be challenged. So, yeah, okay. I I can kind of get behind that. But in this day and age, it's just hard to, to get behind a character ignoring time after time evidence of being stalked you know i did want to run by you guys the idea like <laughs> the, the 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 cinematic grammar of this sequence with the 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 laundry and michael standing out in laurie's yard is such that she's looking at him we see the shot of her face and then we see him down there and we cut back to the same shot of her face and you know she doesn't demonstrably change her expression or reaction or anything. And then we cut back into the exact same shot of where Michael was, but now he's gone. So like the other times where he kind of disappears, she's distracted. She looks away, she looks back and Oh, now he's gone. But the, the grammar of this sequence suggests that we should have a shot in there. Unless Michael dematerializes <laughs> where he leaves. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll but we don't have that. I'll give an interpretation that's generous to the filmmakers. You're talking about the fact that like she has to endure this, you know, seven or eight times before she before she comes to accept it. What if Michael's not there? Like, what if this is just a like a a, a trick that her mind is playing on her because she has seen him elsewhere, and so she started to. You know, it's kind of like, what's the word I was looking for? Everyone knows what I'm saying, though. Like, she's basically, she's seeing things. But it's based on someone that she actually saw earlier. He's on her mind. I think that in filmmaking terms, if you wanted to create that ambiguity, you could do it. But you can't have it only happen in one shot basically is my answer to that. Like if, if this was the only evidence, if this is the only evidence we have that really her mind is literally playing tricks on itself, uh, that's not good enough because I think we have to, as the viewer assume that this is at take it at face value that yeah, he's there. And like I've been saying, like we're really only wrestling with, her denial of what her eyes are actually telling us. The movie does not make any effort to suggest that she's an unreliable narrator or that she really is kind of 
spotting him as as Loomis says later to justify badly why they don't tell anyone um, that Michael is back. Well, you know, you'll be seeing that people will be seeing him on every street corner. I think the movie could have sold that, but I I don't think it's actually making any effort to do so. It's a, it's a, look, it's, I mean, it's a trick to create a creepy moment. Right. And it works. Yeah. You know, I think it like it, my generous interpretation is that the, as the sheets are fluttering in the wind, at some point he's totally obscured by the sheets. And then when the sheets move away, uh, uh, he's gone. We don't get that shot. It's probably pretty hard to make sheets do what you want them to do. <laughs> yeah. on film but it makes for again it makes for for a really creepy moment i had one other thing i wanted to call out in this scene and and yeah. this is really just a, a gift from me to myself as i've tried to piece this together is i've been obsessed in the spare decor of this room that she is a james enzor poster this has probably been covered by explorations elsewhere but i kept banging my head against why it's james enzor and because I've been to actually two James Enzer exhibits in my life, um, once on purpose and once accidental. Um, and in the course of staring at it in this conversation, I realized that he's a painter that was well known for putting people in masks. Oh. So he did these like huge murals where he would take the aristocracy and then put them in these sort of like grotesque masks that to reflect their inner turmoil or what have you. Anyways. That's that's actually, if you think about it, according to my earlier theory, that's the inverse of Michael Myers, where he's put on a plain mask to hide the the ugliness inside. Yes. Michael does not put on a grotesque mask, right? Yeah, that's antithetical Mm -hmm. to Michael, even though what's going on inside is truly grotesque, right? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's a that's a that's a good insight there, Rich, that I, I had no awareness of. So Lori goes back to telling herself to calm down after watching him teleport or as uh Vic suggested, you know, just disappear behind the flapping sheet. And I, I think this is like back to the idea production wise, sometimes you have happy accidents, sometimes you have unhappy accidents. I think you we can chalk this one up to they they realized in the editing room, oh fuck, we the shot of Michael like spookily backing away or you know vanishing behind the sheet sucks. We we can't use it. So they're just like, yeah, you know, just just he's gone when we cut back to him. And it, it works perfectly fine, but I, I, I think that they just didn't realize whatever their plan to, to get out of this scene was. Um, it, and then, and, and so now they just, it's essentially just, they cheated it. Um, because it <laughs> like, was lame. And <laughs> I like that in the John Evans cut of this film, it's like, there's just a, there's a really key shot missing where Michael goes, <laughs> it just disappears he basically pulls like the homer simpson meme of like backing away through the book yeah right 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 i mean the other way to do it was well they had a shot where you know laurie is like oh wait where's my cat or 
shit, I'll pick up my camera to get a picture of this. And they're like, nah, that's kind of lame. Doesn't doesn't she she, like let the window does, does, doesn't like the window fall or something like that? No, dude, that would have, that would have worked. She's literally just looking out the window the whole time. And in one shot he's there. And then the next, uh, he's gone and she's just like, her face is in the exact same position watching the whole time. And there's no explanation for how he's gone. The phone rings at one point in that scene. Is, does she look away to the phone? I, I mean, I guess you saw it, so I'm, I'm going to say no. Um, is there anything I'm, I'm promising you that I'm correct in what I'm saying <laughs> about the I way this your is promise. Uh, <laughs> edited. <laughs> it, that's just the way it plays out. So she also, after this, she goes back out onto the street to wait for her ride. She's alone and vulnerable, and she doesn't seem a bit concerned about any of the experiences she's had today. She's seen this dude multiple times in her neighborhood and now in her backyard just today, and she seems pretty carefree. And I think the audience is meant to believe she's chalking it up to just being superstitious, I guess, and or the fact that it's Halloween night and dudes in masks get a lot more leeway than on April 31st. And I do think you have to allow for that. All right. So then we cut from that to Loomis in the cemetery. And I still get a a good laugh when the cemetery guy just never quite gets to tell us what old Charlie Bowles proceeded to do (laughs) with that hacksaw. (laughs) It's actually one of my my favorite like exchanges in this movie. Yes. How disinterested Loomis is. Absolutely. I love it. And to uh, Luke's point earlier, like, I think this is one of the few moments of like obvious comedy in the film where, you know, this is set up. This is a joke. It's set up as a true laugh moment for the audience in that, you know, he's going to tell us about what he, Charlie Bowles did after he kissed his wife and kids. Good night. And then, you know, Loomis is completely disinterested and, and, and shuts him down. And I, I love it on multiple levels because, you know, we've got this guy who it's his moment in the spotlight. He's going to tell a tale and impress the fancy doctor from out of town in the suit. And he just, you know, he doesn't he doesn't get that that opportunity. And I think today this might be too sort of meta or obvious, you know, that of course this guy wants to, wants to do that. You know, it's like in our Instagram culture, but I think in 1978, this is just, you know, a a fantastic kind of moment. You work in a cemetery. You don't have a lot of people to talk to, you know, somebody shows up, you get to pull out your A plus story, man. You know? (laughs) Yeah. He's milking it, man. He's, he, he's gonna, he thinks he's earning his keep with this guy and Loomis is just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. All right. And I think name another movie where Michael Myers does something like Jack a gravestone for future use in a tableau, the di- design of which is TBD. This is one of those other moments where I, I think about that impish Halloween spirit where, the malicious mischief of a Halloween demon might be a component of, of this Michael's personality. And I'm kind of glomming on to that in this watch and this 
discussion because it does kind of interest me. You know, I love the tableau and it does speak to Michael's inner life, as we've talked about before, that this somehow was meaningful to him. Um, it does like, you know, Jason riding the bus. Like it does have this like comical <laughs> vision of him dragging this gravestone back to his station wagon, loading it into the back station wagon, just bottoming out every time he goes over a bump. <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah like where is it that it winds up in uh you know in annie's house or whatever or uh Lindsay's house um like was there a neighbor like a maybe an old grandma or something who's looking out the window and instead of you know watching him carry this woman dramatically in his arms like Forbidden Planet, um, she just watches him hump this gravestone into somebody's house. Like, <laughs> yeah. Does he, does he have a dolly? Like a dolly would make it more reasonable. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Michael Myers just wheeling the dolly in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe he, he got that at the hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> If the sheriff, if, if Brackett had said, all he took was some rope, a mask, and a and a furniture dolly. <laughs> oh, deleted scene. Yeah, they cut yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> so good. <laughs> so after this, we get a sunset drive with uh, Lori and Annie. And uh, part of this leads into a high schooler's worst nightmare where you're high in a car and you're stopped by your friend's sheriff dad. But the way this plays out, it's no problem for these two. Apparently, uh, Sheriff Brackett can't smell marijuana or uh, the open windows just cleared that doobie smoke toot sweet because he's got no idea that they were just hitting Jay's. And the real takeaway of the sequence, I think, on some level, is that we learn again that Laurie is painfully shy with boys. It's a very endearing quality for the character, but um, it's kind of just like sort of that goofy ode to the teen movie, I think, is the, the point of the sequence, other than making Sheriff Brackett look kind of incompetent, which is somewhat re- relevant to the plot. Also, Lori and I are the same kind of, of stoner. We're like, I also would have been like, he knew. I'm sure he knew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Paranoid? Yeah. Yeah. That's me. For sure. Yeah. Uh, that's what, I think he's just a cool dad. <laughs> he's yeah. just a cool dad. <laughs> Bracket was I like, about- you know how much paperwork I'm going to have to do if I bust my daughter for smoking pot? <laughs> right. Right. I, I do want to talk about the, this this driving sequence a bit uh, that, mm-hmm. that surrounds that scene is like it's it's gorgeous like definitely like shot yeah. at like the perfect time of day and it kind of keeps catching these little glimpses of sunlight and when I was listening to the the previous podcast that you guys did on Halloween you had just done it follows as well and you made a lot of references to it follows and I didn't connect it before but visually. There's there's so many similarities in how they use the the camera um, in that movie and in and in this movie and this is one place where that really stood out to me is like the the driving shots and it follows 
um, where I forget the name of the, her character's Jay is in the back of the, the car being driven around. Like really to me kind of evoke this like aimless meandering, like lost in a train of thought, like teenage quality. And you, you, you also see similarities in the, the, the sort of like these tracking shots and these like tripod where the camera is like tracking the characters walking across the, the, the road. But like, so anyways, there, there's a beautiful visual lift there in terms of it follows, but also just like this on its own, it shows why a film would be trying to crib those looks. Like this is a really nice looking scene. I, when I was talking before about how I said the movie has a lot more comedy in it than I expected this, that whole uh, car sequence is part of it because he's, he's following them in a, a old Brown station wagon. Like there's no less menacing car. Maybe a gremlin? Like, what would be a less menacing car? But it somehow, it works, but it's also funny. Um, it's menacing and funny at the same time. But I also think this is, like, the last scene of true normalcy. Like, the sun sets on their on their old life here. You know, it's this golden hour. It's beautiful. They're just joking around. Everything is fine. And once night fall comes the stakes rise and things start to get they're separated the characters really don't connect again meaningfully and yeah this is kind of the movie's like farewell to that kind of idyllic idea of as rich was talking about just being a teenager and driving around and not having you know, other concerns larger than will Ben Tramer take me to the dance tomorrow, you know, and it, it captures there's an innocence to the sequence. Absolutely. A carefreeness that feels really it's not Richard Linkletter or anything, but, you know, it feels kind of uh, organic and insightful. Well, but it does also culminate in the conversation between Bracken and Loomis, right? Loomis then is facing the wrong way and we see the brown car drive past behind him, which is just like the personification of what I was talking about, where the people that are supposed to be protecting you, Michael just slips through it like a, you know, like a, like a sieve. It doesn't, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, that raises the point back of the utter incompetence, like the almost ludicrous incompetence of the police and Loomis which is its own topic. Well, so but I remember, I mean, I remember we talked about that and, and had lots of good laughs about it in the, uh, um, in the, in our first sort of, uh, dissection of this. But I, I, I almost think the more I, the more I've watched it and the more I thought about it, it's more to the fact that how much luck there is, but again, we depend on the on the police. We depend on the the people. But like, you know, I, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and stuff. And like, it's astonishing how much it's some fucking patrolman pulls somebody over. You know, it's a serial killer who's killed thirty seven people and nobody bothered him. And this time, you know, he the, the, he left the knife under the seat or some blood spattered on something that he didn't notice. His- tail light is out or exactly and so it's just like it's just the fact that loomis was facing the wrong direction when michael went by 
that means that all these people are going to die. Uh, and so that's as again as much as you want to talk, I want to talk about the the incompetence of the of the police and everything else. It's also I think that that world that Lori is denying that she lives in this safe world where the where the cops are going to catch the bad guy. And the reality is only if they're only if they're facing east and not west. You know. Well, the movie like it's not trying to cheat this. It, it rubs it in Loomis's face and the audience's face that, that, that Michael Myers like just drives, you know, a slow turn right behind Loomis in the car, very car he was riding in when he, you know, the car that he knows Michael took. Um, so it's not hiding from or running away from the idea that, he's right there. You know, it's embracing that, that notion, but I just kind of feel like the preponderance of evidence about bracket and Loomis is that they make the wrong choices so many times that my takeaway is not, um, you know, God, these guys were just, you know, doing everything right. But sometimes you're just facing East instead of West. No, it's like they're not doing everything right. They're doing everything wrong, and also they happen to be facing the wrong way. That's that's how I see it. <laughs> you know, I mean, not to mention the fact that later on, Michael parks that thing right there on the street, and at some point, Loomis just kind of turns around and is like, "Oh, there's the car." It's like hundred <laughs> feet away from me. So he's been out there all night. He didn't notice that the cars parked there, stuff like that. Yeah. At the end of the day, you are talking about two people. Like you're criticizing these people, but like it's a small town cop who's never faced a crime like this before. And a guy who literally, this is not his job, despite all other indication. Like, Loomis is not a detective. He's not even a profiler. Right. He's a child psychologist or, you know, yeah, he certainly, he, he didn't come on to Michael's case because, you know, he, yeah, like, you know, he, he's an FBI profiler or something, but he just became obsessed with this on a personal level because he exposed to this guy for so long. He realized, Oh my God, you know, this is not, clinical psychology. There's something much darker at work here. So, I mean, you're right. Um, but it's still kind of comical. Both things can be true. Loomis was also right that Michael, that Michael's goal was to go home. I mean, that's the first thing he does with bracket is go to the house, which is where, again, if Lori hadn't dropped off the keys, Michael might've been sitting there just, just chewing on a dog leg all right, it's Mr. Strode, dude. That's who you got to blame for all of this. <laughs> that dude had just done his goddamn job and dropped off those keys himself. We wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> all right, well, that's a good stopping point for tonight. I'm happily surprised that uh, that we have gotten only this far through the movie in one night. But uh, but it is it's a rich broth. So. 
uh, let's go around the horn and, and, and sort of any final thoughts for, for this evening and in some way and form and fashion we'll finish up in the future. My mid movie final thought is, (laughs) (laughs) is that I I actually, I mean, look, this movie always is like, it's the night he came home. Like clearly he's always going home. But Vic, I just want to throw you a thanks that I, I do feel like the the way in which you phrased it as like, you know, like it's Halloween. He's got to make it home like it's planes, trains and automobiles really transform this into a, you know, a, a bald faced horror film and made it sort of a life affirming holiday movie. And thank you for that. <laughs> Which begs the question. Question: The fan film, the short film of his encounter with John Candy on the road back from the <laughs> road. Oh man! I mean, that's a sequence I want to see. <laughs> Vic, I so a John. I want to. I want to agree with you that I was a little nervous going into this because what the fuck were we going to talk about Halloween? Yeah. I mean, I really, again, I really tried to do my homework because I wanted to be sure that we had some we had some different perspectives and different ideas to talk about. And of course, I mean, thankfully, there's no shortage of uh, ideas and interpretations and and stuff available. But uh, I also, as we as we hit this midpoint, I want to call attention to another idea that I came across, which is the way in which this film. Uh, narrows its focus and closes the walls in that in the early going, you have lots of open air scenes, lots of space, you know, sort of exterior scenes. And I think what we're going to see when we come back are the various ways in which the set closes and gets smaller and smaller and smaller uh, until it hits sort of a, a, a very claustrophobic point. And then we're going to get, the, what should be the release at the end, but of course there's no release of tension with the way that it, that it's framed. So uh, appreciating the openness of the the first half of this film, which really is where we've is is what we've covered, or all the scenes that take place outside. The thing it's funny, uh, uh, Luke. You mentioned the birds being piped in. The thing that bothers me is all the all the leaves. <laughs> there's a there's really way too many leaves falling <laughs> throughout the first half. That's of right. The movie. Um, they do swirl very nicely, though. It's very Halloweenish. It's true. It's it's also it's almost like American Beauty ish. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this movie was shot in March, so yeah, that's all fake. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's so let's let's all take a moment and appreciate these these wide open vistas. Uh, that Dean Cundy's uh, cinematography captured uh, because it's, it's going to get very different uh, when we come back. Yeah, absolutely. Vic. I mean, I think one of the big focal points of the film after this moment is that the geography becomes so contained and clear. Like we're, we're going to become so familiar as an audience with this house is here, that house is there and that interplay of those two locations. Uh, it's one of the spaces that I feel 
most intimately familiar with in all of cinema. And I think there's something really kind of cool and interesting about that. But there is also, yeah, a wonderful claustrophobia about it at the same time. And we'll get into all of that next time. And I am, again, happily surprised that there's so much more to discuss about this film. And I had my doubts that we would. But New Blood always helps. And Luke, uh, what are your thoughts after having survived a night with the March Mad Men? and uh, about this movie before we say farewell for now. Well, I, we've, we've talked for uh, hours here, and we haven't even gotten to the, the first kill yet of this movie. So that's, that's pretty impressive. We're just talking about the ramp-up to it. And, uh, yeah, the fact that the movie can be so interesting, and it's just so far really the guy driving around stalking people, um, it's compelling. I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's boring at all. You can't fault this movie for being boring, I don't think. And... Uh, I guess we were saying before that there's some sequences that feel a little drawn out or 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 padded, maybe like you could pare them down even more. I feel like this movie's pared down pretty well. I don't know. I, I, there's some, like I said, some parts I wish they were a little more clear in in their choices. But uh, this is a this is a good movie. I like it. I'm, yes, I'd watch it again for sure. I've watched it three times now. I will watch it a fourth. I can guarantee that. Uh, you know, I've probably watched it 10 or 15 times and I, I can say I don't regret any of those watches. So yeah, you, you have more enjoyment ahead of you. And for the record, I think the scenes that are drawn out come after the point that we've discussed, uh, so far for the most part, because I think it's really the second half of the movie that was really drawing it out. But, um, we'll, uh, We'll get into that, and it's not like a huge problem. It's just, you know, in terms of modern pacing and the just the relative simplicity of this plot, I think that they felt compelled to to, to play things out longer than, than we would today. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been fun talking about it with you guys, and I look forward to doing so more. And I hope everyone listening has enjoyed it. So for now... Adios, and um, if you yell at a guy driving too fast in your neighborhood in, in a station wagon, uh, just know you, you might regret that decision. So uh, try not to. Feel free to call your local constable if someone in a mask keeps showing up outside your window multiple times in, 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 in the same day. Don't worry. I don't think you're crying, Wolf. Just Just go for it. Call him. All right. Thanks, everyone. Adios.